Well, it's another weekend, and I'm excited to record another episode. Honestly, though, I'm a little disheveled and out of sorts because uh, I've broken my computer. Um, I have created a Hackintosh, and it might be a whole other episode that I might do with some friends who've helped me uh, through these computer things, but uh, right now all I need to say is I don't have my normal computer working. I have a laptop that I've been using, and uh, but I've built this Hackintosh for editing and stuff, and that's what I have all my podcasting things on, and I was trying to run an update uh, to update the booting menu and the bootloader, and, and then I was also trying to update to Big Sur, which is the new Apple OS, and anyway, it's all uh, messed up. So, uh, if the editing quality of this podcast is less than my normal, that's why. Uh, if it's better than my normal, then maybe uh, I need to do less with my podcast than I have been doing. So today we want to talk about honesty and honestly where we're at. Um, I've been noticing this as a theme in my life, um, especially this last week, but but all of 2020 really. It's definitely been something that Janelle and I have uh, talked through a lot as we just kind of grew up um, differently and um, we've realized that we need to be honest with each other about our expectations, about marriage and about communication. We need to be honest uh, with each other about um, some of the things that have shaped the way that we talk to each other and uh, receive information. Uh, we need to be honest with each other when we're frustrated with each other and uh, talked through those things. And also sometimes we need to be honest with each other that we just need a break. We just need some time uh, alone and to do our own thing. So honesty has been um, something that we've been learning a lot about. Uh, we're reading a, a Advent series called Honest Advent. It's a new book. Um, I think his name is Scott Erickson, and he's an artist and done some some different theology work and art and all that kind of stuff. And so I've been really enjoying the Honest Advent book. And if you're realizing it's halfway through Advent already, um, you could still pick up the book and still be worth the read. Some of them are shorter. Some of them are a little bit longer. I really appreciated his introduction as it introduced me to some uh, important aspects of art, and especially when it comes to uh, Advent, we've been kind of inundated with Christmassy-themed art most of the time, and so we have these images in our mind already, as you're probably thinking about, um, just kind of Jesus in a manger and all these different things, and I felt like his art was pretty honest. It was a a different approach, different look, and it was helpful. Um, We're only halfway through, but but it's been, been really good. Uh, we're also been listening to podcasts, and uh, I specifically was listening to one where uh, some friends talked about um, honesty around politics, and they had recorded it right after, I guess it was the weekend uh, after the election, and obviously there was a lot that happened in uh, this election, and there were a lot of results still being determined um, all the way through the weekend. And we're still reeling from a lot of um, need around honesty around politics, I think. And so uh, that was just an interesting podcast and, and kind of got me thinking, well, I'm reading this Honest Advent. I listened to this Honest podcast. And then um, my own conversations around politics, uh, I'll just be really frank and honest with you. I, uh, in 
I think it was the beginning of this year or uh, possibly the end of 2019, I was sitting at a uh, tender greens in Los Angeles before COVID, uh, before the COVID restrictions hit. And we were uh, having lunch with some young adults and a gal turned and looked at me and said, I don't know how uh, you could have voted for Trump. And we were talking about politics somehow and uh, she ended up saying that to me, and I didn't know that she knew that I had in 2016 voted for Donald Trump, and um, it was a very interesting conversation, and she had heard that from somebody else I had been honest with um, about my political quandary, because in 2016, I voted uh, the way I felt like I needed to, uh, and I think in many ways, uh, I stand by my decision. But in other ways, I have wrestled the last four years with a lot of things, especially um, Donald Trump's uh, kind of flippant way that he uses Twitter and engages in conversations with great hyperbole, some things we'll probably get into with honesty, to where I'm not, uh, I'm not comfortable that I did that. And so in 2020, I didn't vote for Donald Trump. Um, so it's kind of an interesting uh, thing. Uh, I didn't vote for Joe Biden either, but um, but at the same point, I, I just want to be honest with that. Um, if I'm going to talk about honesty, I feel like I need to be honest about where I'm at with some of those things. Um, I, have, I have a politically correct parables book that I got when I was taking a parables class at Fuller Seminary, and it's really funny. It was used as a devotional um, kind of not really a devotional, more of just a, a, like a humor, humorous way to engage with some of these parables that we are super familiar to us. So I want to share this to you. It's sarcasm. It's heavily sarcastic. And uh, you may not be that comfortable with that it's coming from the Word of God, but it still captures, I think, the point of the parable, in fact. It just does it in a little bit of a humorous way. So here is the humility-impoverished Pharisee and the marginalized publican by politically correct parables. One day, Jesus was speaking to a large crowd on a hillside in Galilee. As was his custom, he taught the crowd using parables because he respected his listeners' ability to think in an enlightened way. However, he noticed that some of the morally righteous Pharisees had sneaked into the crowd and were whispering among themselves. They were pointing and laughing at some of the differently abled persons in the crowd and exhibiting judgmentalist behavior. So Jesus told this parable. Two male persons went up to the temple to pray to their higher power. One person was humility-impoverished Pharisee, and the other was a marginalized collector of federal revenue. The Pharisee stood apart from the revenue collector because he believed himself to be of a higher social class, and he prayed, Higher power, I thank you that I am not like other persons, non-waged, underhoused, morally different, non-goal-oriented, or non-monogamous. I am especially thankful that I am not like this revenue collector who surely tells untruths in order to economically exploit the underclass. I eat fat-free, sodium-free foods and lead a healthy lifestyle. I give 10% of my pre-tax income to empower the disadvantaged. In general, I'm a great guy. Of course, you already knew that. The federal revenue collector, standing at the edge of the temple, would not even lift his eyes toward his higher power as the Pharisee had. Apparently, he suffered from low self-esteem. Instead, he looked down and prayed in a quiet voice, Lord, please be merciful to me, 
an exploiter of the masses. I have taken advantage of persons who are differently abled, cerebrally challenged, and economically disadvantaged. I beg your forgiveness. So that the Pharisees would get the point, Jesus commented on the parable. I tell you the truth, the marginalized revenue collector went to his home with the blessing of his higher power. For all who are humility impoverished will be equalized, and all who are humility gifted will become self-actualized. After hearing this, one Pharisee whispered to the others, I believe this Jesus person has verbally abused us. He is definitely not right thinking because he believes that a revenue collector's uh, prayer could be superior to one of ours. He may be a Marxist. They walked away shaking their heads in disgust. All right, don't uh, walk away from this podcast thinking that I think Jesus is a Marxist by any means, but um, I do think that it's it's hilarious, the, the verbiage there, talking about God as a higher power. I, I think it's, it's fun. It's tongue-in-cheek a little in satire, but I think the value of honesty really is connected to this humility impoverished nature or this humility um, gifted um, nature. I mean, I, I really think that this parable as we read it, um, not just from the politically incorrect parable, but uh, book, but the actual parable itself really does demonstrate that humility um, is shown through honesty. That there was an honesty about the uh, tax collector or the, the revenue collector or the publican, whatever you want to call him, that was that was true. He was admitting that he needed mercy. Um, he wouldn't even raise his eyes towards heaven. He recognized that he was a sinner. He was honest about his state versus the Pharisee who put on this kind of false humility. I don't do these things, but I do do these things. I, I give money away. I I don't, I refrain from eating bad stuff and living um, immorally. So I'm good, God. And I think God values, and Jesus especially models this, it values humility. And that is shown uh, through the honesty that we have, recognition of our faults and being truthful about that. And so I think as we've come into this season, this year, uh, we've talked a lot about different things that are fake news or half-truths or or questioning whether we can even know the truth or whether these politicians are being honest with us or the government is being honest with us about uh, health things. And as we enter into this uh, year, this flu season, we started the year out, and I will be honest and truthful in saying that I started the year out saying that COVID-19 was not as dangerous as the flu. And I told friends just think about the flu and care for yourself. If you're sick, stay home. Um, use common sense. And I've come to realize that I honestly don't know what COVID-19 really is and what its effects are. I have friends who have had it now and have said it's, it's different than any sort of flu. I've had family members who've had it and then had other things that have gone crazy wrong. Um, and so I'm not sure if it's connected or not, or if this year is just a year where people uh, are getting sick with things that we're not, not sure about. And my dad reminds me over and over again that hindsight is, is, a, is a luxury, right? It's, it's to look back and to question um, and say, was the juice worth the squeeze? Was the restrictions worth the cost? 
is really unfair because we just didn't understand what it was like and we still don't as we've entered now into this next flu season really uh, the second flu season that COVID-19 has really been present for we are now um, still having so many infections high infection rates and and then also uh, now tremendous death rates and hospitalizations and so we really are um, still living with a need for humility in we just don't know and I know that that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm discounting some of the evidence that might strongly say hey we we may be restricting things too much or um, maybe there's there's some other things we could do uh, to to prevent uh, especially the people who are most at risk from getting COVID-19 without restricting so much other people so I'm not trying to say that I'm falling lockstep in line with one way of thinking about the pandemic what I'm honestly saying is I began with a very skeptical we don't need to restrict as strongly and I have moved to a, a situation where I don't know what the best course of action is and uh, I'm not not saying that I uh, think people who are smarter than me like a Dr. Fauci or these other people that they don't know I just am saying that I don't know and I want to be honest about that, and I think we should be a little bit, um, because there's been so many exaggerations, there's been so many white lies and half-truths and hyperbole used about things uh, in 2020, about the, the COVID-19 um, virus, about uh, the elections, about vaccines, about uh, technology, about companies, about the government. Uh, all these kind of things have become really, really difficult to wade through. But I realized that honesty actually permeates down to the like simple parts of our life, that those exaggerations and those white lies and those half-truths and those hyperbole are actually uh, starting in our everyday. Um, so we call them fish stories, right? It's like when you come back from fishing, you said, I caught a 10-inch fish, but every time you tell the story, the fish gets two inches bigger. So by the time you tell your buddies um, at work on Friday, after you fish the last Sunday, the fish is now a 22-inch fish, right? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Because your friend caught a 12-inch fish, you needed to one-up him by saying, well, no, I'm pretty sure my fish was 14. Um, or you hear a story about somebody who has something tragic happen to them, and you say, no, I've got one better for you. Uh, a lot of my buddies and I do this with, with churches. We can tell uh, terrible stories about how uh, church ministers got fired or, or needed to be fired or churches fell apart or split um, over the weirdest things. You think that's bad? I've got one more for you. And I, I think that there's a, uh, a competition involved, um, a healthy sense of uh, camaraderie that comes from some of these things. Uh, just like the humor in the politically uh, correct parables, um, I think that it's it's fine to use sarcasm and and those kind of things at times. But I also think that we need to be careful that we're not modeling for our children, that we're not uh, practicing um, kind of exaggerations and white lies and half truths. Um, so much so that that permeates who we are, so that we no longer are in touch. With what is true. I, I don't know about you, but you've probably had relatives or family members or friends, close friends, uh, who do this. Um, 
the first time they tell you the story, it's one way, and the next time they tell you the story, it's definitely embellished further. Uh, so much so that now they don't even know. They've told the story maybe 10, 20 times and over the years, and now you don't, you're pretty positive they don't even know the true story about what was happened. What they've invested in is the hyperbole, is in the half-truth. I use a, a story in my book uh, about ketchup, and the story became kind of that I uh, don't like ketchup because I ate so much of it in the Philippines that then, uh, then the ketchup was made by with a banana base, and so it was sweeter. So when I got back to the States, I disliked ketchup on anything, and uh, as I got older, I became a, a total reject of ketchup in general, uh, so much so that I told myself that it, the reason I didn't like ketchup was because it was so gross, all right? So I, I don't actually know what the true story is. I just know that I've told myself multiple versions of the story regarding ketchup, and I've given myself many, many reasons why it makes sense. Um, we can get kind of ingrained in these stories that we tell ourselves, and it becomes very difficult, I think, to navigate what is actually true and what is honest. So um, I've got six things that I think would be important, honest conversations that I think we need to have. Um, and so I, I give these as kind of the value-add conversations, like what if as people, we invested in these six conversations with those around us. Um, so the first one is, honestly, um, we need to stop using I'm fine. Uh, now, I'm not saying that you can't use the words I'm fine, but with some people around you, you need to be honest. You need to say, honestly, though, I'm, I'm not fine, or I am fine, uh, or I, you know, I am fine in the sense that I'm freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. From One of my favorite quotes from uh, it, the movie Italian Job. And so as you're talking through the things, you know, you, you need to have that community, that group of people. Um, I was part of a, a group of youth ministers in the L.A. area. And it's really the whole Southern California region of Churches of Christ. And we would get together once a month, um, except in the summer because we saw each other like almost every week in the summer. We'd go to the beach uh, for the beach bonfires, but definitely uh, during the, the school year, it was really important, and that came about because of a youth minister committing suicide um, many, many years ago in the 80s, and uh, there's been a group of Southern California Church of Christ youth ministers who've been meeting since then, and uh, I feel like it's really been uh, something I've missed uh, moving away from Los Angeles. I'm, I'm on a, a preaching group Zoom call right now because we're not meeting in person. I still connect with those youth ministers once in a while, um, and a couple of them I still do share pretty honestly about where we're at. I think one of the great ways of practicing that and having that community is that we go around and we're able to model and, and encourage each other to pray for each other, but also just to be that listening ear and to check in with each other once in a while uh, after hearing something that's been pretty pretty hard. Um, I, I especially think uh, about the time that uh, my wife, uh, Janelle, after our, our daughter Ashlyn was born, had postpartum depression, and uh, realizing that there is, there is times in our life uh, where we need professional help, uh, where we're not fine, and that's important to say. And so I've become 
very, very a, a big champion of mental uh, health and um, and especially therapy and all those kind of things that I think it's very, very important to be willing to say, I'm not fine. Um, this is what's going on. And honestly, uh, get get help. Um, the second conversation is about spirituality. And, um, you know, on the podcast, I do some of my preaching and, and other things. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're not not a Christian, great. I think spirituality still 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 counts, you know. Uh, the reality is that I need to admit that I'm not the most mindful, uh, prayerful, uh, attentive to God's spirit, attentive to my own uh, body and and soul as I should be. Um, so I don't pray that as much as I should. Um, I don't pray as much as I even write about in my book. I, I talk about a, a rule of life, a rhythm of life, and I don't follow it to the T. It's a, it's a it's a goal that I have. I, I would like to, and there are some weeks that I do, and some weeks that I I definitely don't. Um, I definitely don't read my Bible every day, and uh, and then I, if you're thinking about those kind of three things that go into spirituality, the, the third conversation is about sin, the things that we need to repent of. Right? Um, I think we need to be honest about the things in our life that are broken and out of control. I especially think about the things that we pursue to help us escape um, the things that we help uh, help us kind of control our anxieties um, these are often behaviors that we learn um, that can help us do it so things like uh, especially when I was younger but I would say even to this day um, like things like masturbation and porn um, are often ways in which I uh, as a teenage boy learn to control um, and escape uh, from my anxieties and so we need people that we can be honest about our sins with, uh, things that are amiss in our life. And, uh, and then so the fourth conversation is uh, about theology. So, um, And then the fifth one is about politics. So theology and politics, I think, merge together to create ethics. And a lot of conversations about ethics have been coming up recently. Um, if you were at all tuned into the uh, some of the things regarding, um, oh, there's a con couple conspiracies that I'm thinking of, and one is uh, about the vaccine, um, and a couple other ones are about uh, politics, uh, about like rich people wanting to control the, the world. Um, uh, I'm going to have to look it up um, later, but um, but I, I've just been, been wrestling with this idea of like, Okay, well, where where do we think about our ethical conversations about how you know how do we care for people, economics, all of these things? Um, well, I think it's really a, a merging of the way in which our worldview, um, which I think of as as the dominant, uh, or which I think of as the kind of the playground of of theology. Right, theology is forming the way that in which we understand God. And God really shapes our worldview. So who, whatever your God is, if you're a humanist and people are the most important thing and there's no higher power above humans, then, um, you know, AA would say, well, you need a higher power. But at the same point, I think uh, that, that's, that's a worldview. You're, you're seeing human achievement as the highest form uh, of good. And so that shapes your worldview. Uh, if you believe in a, a loving God, 
that shapes your worldview. If you believe in a, a God who punishes and, and uh, as the dominant view of that God, then you have a different worldview. And so you just believing in there is a God or there is a higher power doesn't necessarily mean that you have the same worldview as someone else. And your worldview impacts and plays itself out, I believe, in your political action and your political views. And that's where ethics comes out. Ethics is your worldview meeting your action. Um, and so um, that maybe is kind of not a, a great, um, you know, I didn't do any theological or I didn't do any grad work in ethics, but I've just kind of uh, thought about this in my my own way. Um, there's probably more to ethics than that, but I think we need to be honest about our theology. What do we believe in? What do we don't believe in? Um, one of the great preaching stories is sitting on an airplane, getting ready for his sermon. This pastor is sitting there and uh, somebody looks over and says, oh, are you one of those you know Bible-thumping Christians or something like that? And he said, well, I don't know. What do you, what do you mean by that? And, um, and he said, well, I don't believe in God. And, and the pastor basically said, he closed his Bible and he says, well, tell me about this God you don't believe in because I probably don't believe in him either. Uh, I've heard several variations of this story from different pastors, so I assume that it, it might have happened to someone sometime, but it's definitely a really handy little story. And I think that's important. We need to be honest about the God that we don't believe in anymore. Um, whether that's the God of humanism, I'm, I'm definitely there at times. I, I am excited in celebrating the things like um, the, the Elon Musk uh, kind of human achievement pinnacle where he's trying to get us to, the, to Mars and everything like that. And that's great. I'm excited that we can do so much. Or when you look back at history and we send a man to the moon, like that's great. Human achievement is awesome. But I have, I don't believe that the, the God of human human achievement is the one that's going to help me have the correct worldview. And uh, I've had to let some of that go. I think there's some definite brokenness. And, and when we try, try, and try, and try to succeed, I think there comes a cost. Um, and so uh, my political action kind of has met that by saying I'm not sure that uh, I'm always going to be lockstep in line with the person who I think is the most successful or the one who has got the best plan. Um, but I'm definitely looking for people who are a little bit uh, modeling humility in that way, uh, a willingness to say, I don't know. Um, so the last conversation I think that's really, really important about honesty um, that I think we a lot of times are avoiding and a lot of times we're doing that because we want to feel safe, is family. Um, I think there's uh, a lot of a lot of things that we keep from each other or a lot of ways that we um, cause each other to have to keep things from us. Um, so I don't know. Uh, there's, there's definitely things that I look back on and go, man, if our family could have just been honest with each other, a lot of these things would have been easier, I think. Uh, there's also times where uh, when we were honest, it was painful, but that pain opened up uh, avenues for deeper relationship in some of those. Um, there were times, uh, for instance, my parents had to leave the church that my uh, 
aunt and uncle were attending um, and had been members for a lot longer than my parents had been. But we all were part of that church uh, until my grandmother passed away. And then uh, my dad was even in leadership and I was uh, on staff for part of that time. And then when I moved out of college, my dad helped them find a new minister. And it was after that that he ended up, he and my mom ended up finding a different church. And it was really interesting. Uh, I'm not sure how honest the conversations have been uh, around this, but it's been really interesting how I think they would say that their relationship has grown uh, to be uh, better and easier and just uh, more joy-filled because they're no longer at church together at the same exact church building. They, they still all count each other as Christians, I, I think, um, but they... They value each other more because they're not butting heads over some of the theology and ethics and all that kind of other conversations that were difficult to have. And I think that sometimes we do that to each other because we aren't willing to have conversations um, that are hard. Uh, These are around boundaries sometimes, and, and that's totally fine. I think we need to have honest conversations about, hey, I may need some space from you, and you may need... Uh, some distance, and that's okay. Um, I used to tell teens in my youth group, there's nothing worth keeping from your parents. And this got me uh, around a couple things. One, I'm a mandatory reporter, and so if uh, a student was to share something with me, I am mandatorily reported first, likely to tell their parents, and then uh, to report um, You know, if the child is or this teen has um, been abused or in an abusive relationship or um, possibly thinking about hurting themselves or others. Um, these kind of things are, are mandatory to report. But even as a youth minister of middle school students, especially, I had a lot of middle school students in my ministries, um, I, it was a delicate balance. What are these kids telling me that maybe needs to be talked about with their parents? And some of the times I, I tried to fish things out from parents, like, do you know about this? Or can you tell me more about this or what's going on at home? And other times parents would come to me with the things and, and help, hope that I would fix it, right? Um, but there, was, there were definitely some times where students were testing to see, is Lars safe? Is Lars somebody who's going to keep my secret for me? And so what I did was I tried to create um, both personas. One was that my public persona to everybody, and I said this often, so I, I kind of hit some things um, by the past, uh, kind of hit them, um, headed them off at the past by trying to say, hey, you know that I, I don't believe anything is worth keeping from your parents. And so kids often wouldn't uh, come to me with super crazy confidant stuff about them and their parents because they knew Lars is going to share. Lars believes I should share this with my parents. But at the same point, there were some times when I made some judgment calls and said, yeah, I'm going to listen. I'm going to encourage this student. And no, this is not necessary for their parents to know. And that's okay. We need to be able to, to be flexible on these things. But I also believe um, that a lot of the hurt and a lot of the pain that comes from telling these truths to each other, especially when it comes to family, who I voted for, why I voted that way, what I think about this, what I be- don't believe about anymore, um, all these things, what, what I'm struggling with, uh, how I'm really feeling and doing. Um, I think the pain is, 
immediate and momentary, but I think it actually will produce in us a more honest and healthy relationship in the future. So my, my shadow uh, for me um, is that I, I want people to, to love me. And I can often really become what I believe you want me to be so that you'll like me more. Or at least I hope that is. And I really chase after success. I, I want to be successful. I want to be, as my friends call it, being a big deal. And I'm constantly on the move. I'm not really satisfied even when I reach the goal that I've worked so hard for. I struggle to be satisfied and content in that. I'm always on to the next thing. And if you've done any work with the Enneagram, you you probably have sensed I'm an Enneagram 3. I may have talked about that already. Um, but as I think about that, uh, I love the way Suzanne Stabile says it. Uh, she believes the Enneagram can be a tool that's like putting on glasses and getting a chance to glimpse the world through other people's eyes. So I wear glasses and that image has really uh, stuck with me because sometimes I'll boast that I have the worst sight of anybody when somebody says, oh, I can't hardly see without my glasses. I'll say, well, I can't see without my glasses. I'm blind as a bat. So if you put my glasses on, it'd be pretty hard to see um, because my glasses will distort your vision. But if you got the right kind of glasses, it helps your vision. Just like my glasses help my vision. I have lenses. And with those lenses comes uh, a distortion around the parts where I uh, don't have glass, right? When I put a contact on, it it's pretty much covers my whole eyeball and I can see. But when I'm wearing glasses, I can look down and see out of my glasses without uh, the glass in front of it. And those parts are blurry and uh, kind of out of focus. And when my glasses get dirty, things get out of focus and, um, and hard to see. And so I think of that as kind of what the Enneagram is trying to say. It's not that Lars is a three. It's that Lars's shadow or Lars's um, blurriness or the, the kind of out of uh, focus parts of Lars's vision is this. It's, it's success-oriented. It's achieving focus. Um, I, I put on what I think you want me to be. I'm, I'm, I have an inability to understand my own and process my own emotions, but I'm highly sensitive to other people's emotions. Those are kind of the ways in which I see the world out of order. And what we're trying to do when we learn about our Enneagram number and when we learn about some of these things, uh, personality types, everything like that, it's not that we're trying to lean in and be those things more. It's actually that we're trying to be aware of those things so that we can clean up the lens and see the world more clearly as it is, not as we see it through our distortion. And so if you put on the three glasses by reading a book or by listening to a podcast or, or understanding the Enneagram, you're not seeing the world better. Uh, you're seeing the world the way that I distortedly see the world for a moment. Because if you're not a three, you don't have those distortions. You don't have those gray areas. You don't have that dirt on your lenses like I do. So I think if we were really to be honest um, about the way in which we see the world, about our shadows, if you will, 
um, that could be really, really helpful. And so um, to close with kind of a, a thing about my shadow, um, I think there's some uh, some really helpful work uh, in, in Henry Nouwen's writings about success and about uh, what he calls downward mobility. I, I think that's his term, uh, downward mobility. And um, it's basically becoming less significant, less important. And so I've been using uh, You Are the Beloved, Daily Meditations for Spiritual Living. It's um, excerpts from a bunch of his different works uh, put into a daily, uh, you know, one through, or January through December uh, readings. Um, So I really appreciate this December 11th entry here about uh, Christ and about the Advent season. And I think it connects to this honest conversation that we've been having. And I think for all of us, this is important, but especially I know it, it uh, speaks to my shadow. This is what Nouwen says. I think that we have hardly thought through the immense implications of the mystery of the incarnation. Where is God? God is where we are weak, vulnerable, small, and dependent. God is where the poor are, the hungry, the handicapped, the mentally ill, the elderly, the powerless. How can we come to know God when our focus is elsewhere on success, influence, and power? I increasingly believe that our faithfulness will depend on our willingness to go where there is brokenness, loneliness, and human need. Each one of us is very seriously searching to live and grow in this belief, and by friendship, we can support each other. I realize that the only way for us to stay well in the midst of the many worlds is to stay close to the small, vulnerable child that lives in our hearts and in every other human being. Often we do not know that the Christ child is within us. When we discover him, we can truly rejoice. So I hope that um, Value Add Conversations is one of those companions, one of those people che- you know, cheering you on to have honest conversations, to stay close to the Christ child, um, the incarnation uh, of God within us and around us. And so in this season of Advent, I hope that you uh, stay joyful uh, through honesty, uh, through um, your, your living through and living in uh, the, the moments of, of humility that come by having to be honest with each other. And it may be painful in the moment, but I know that uh, it will bring joy ultimately uh, through the ways that we are able to, to have these honest conversations with each other. So thanks for listening to the podcast, and may you have a great Merry Christmas.